production. Do you want 2023 to be the year you bring your dreams and desires into reality? As you may know, manifestation has been a big part of my practice for a long time now, and through my research and study, I have developed a manifestation course just for you. This course is broken up into six immersive audio modules with printable worksheets. I cover topics like unlocking your emotions so you can receive what you truly desire, understanding the quantum field and how to connect to it, letting go of control and resistance to set manifestation into motion, and embracing and embodying gratitude in order to bring your dreams and desires into reality. This course covers all my teachings and I feel so honoured to be able to share them with you. Manifest Your Greatness is available for purchase at the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com. Anand Marotra is a spiritual and yotish master who was born and brought up in Rishikesh. He has dedicated his entire life to bringing the original teachers of the Himalayan yogic tradition to the world. His sattva yoga teachings come from the Vedic tradition. We turn to Anand to help us understand the puzzle of being ourselves, of rising to our best capacities and gifts in all of our complexity and strangeness. In this hour, we discuss what is predetermined in this existence and what is free will, how one different decision can change the trajectory of your life, and Anand shares actionable ways to celebrate your lived experience, amplify your awareness and elevate your consciousness. Love is the causeless cause. Realizing love is realizing source and realizing yourself. That's one of the great invitations of life, right? I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Through my years of studying and researching the connection between human behaviour, personal growth and transformation, I have discovered the keys to unlocking greatness within others. In this podcast, I share stories and experiences from my own teachings, along with conversations with inspiring guests to help you learn the simple tips, habits, practices and strategies to cultivate an extraordinary existence. Anand Marotra is the creator of the Sattva Retreat and Sattva Yoga. He offers many different in-person and online courses steeped in deep wisdom. Anand's teachings remind us of the impermanence of everything and the sacredness of each day. My hope is that our conversation allows you to reimagine your own personal truth and inspires you towards a more meaningful way of life. Anand, you were brought up in Rishikesh on the banks of the Ganges. Can you tell us a bit about your upbringing? Very blessed. I always say it's an intelligent design of birth. It was, I was the right place for what my soul designed to do. I think it was a beautiful, Rishikesh was like an idyllic place at that time. It was just ashrams and just, I called it the smallest, biggest place because this tiny little village. But it became this kind of a global center for, you know, spirituality and learning. So it was only two kinds of people at that time, people who lived there and then pilgrims and yogis who, who came because Rishikesh is the gateway to the higher Himalayas, right? Mm. So I've had the great privilege to meet all these incredible people from a very young age. I grew up with my Master, he was there. I learned from him from a very young age. I started meditating at five and, you know, stayed with him. He just lived very close to us. You could play on the street and there was wild animals that would come down. It was uh, elephants and leopards would come down. And now it's very different. Of course, Rishikesh has grown a lot. You know, it's become much, much busier. It was the right time to be, to be a child and to be growing up in Rishikesh. I, I feel extremely blessed to have had that childhood. You talk about your master and when we think about the yogis and the gurus as such, it sounds so exotic. And I feel like in the Western world, we don't have so many of these people and they're always found a lot of the time hidden somewhere in India or in Nepal. But what I want to know is what is a master? How do you define someone as being a master? 
A more simplistic, more approachable word would be a teacher, a guide. I think that's a more accessible term. You know, what's exotic in one place, it's just a way of life in the other, right? Well, I was once in San Francisco and I was teaching there and I met someone and he, somebody introduced me and said, oh, this is one of our brightest minds, you know, he's an investment banker. And I said, so what do you do? And he said, well, I go to exotic countries like India and Bangladesh. I take one dollar and bring back two. And for me, India is not exotic. I just live in India. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Exotic is just always someplace else. So the masters, you know, are, it's just a way of life, especially in Rishikesh at that time, because as I said, it's the land of the yogis and Maharaji, that was the endearing name we called him. His name was Ananda Swarup. He, he knew my parents very well. And I, somebody who is deeply wise and who's able to guide you from a very young age, who has that stable. So it's, it was not, it's not that exotic from our, it's just simply something very natural, just like having wonderful parents and just having a healthy body. It's just as natural as that for us, right? In the environment I grew up in. Mm. And so he was born in central India and he, you know, left home young when I was, when he was a teenager and he moved to higher Himalayas. He spent a lot of time in Badrinath and Uttarkashi and deeply immersed in yogic studies and gaining a certain level of consciousness within himself. And then he was here and he was teaching. He taught all over the world. And I was blessed to have encountered him through my parents. And then I, he accepted me as a, as a student, taught me from a very young age. He dropped his body when I was 18. So I had a, almost 18 years of learning, which had a deep impact on my journey. You know, so it's like, you know, you go to school. I mean, in the West, and it's a school which is mostly designed as industrial education. So I did go to the Western model of schooling and you go to for the industrial education. But uh, this is education for life about your fundamental, who you are, the deeper aspects of life, which, you know, industrial education can't teach you because it's not designed to deliver that, those answers. And so, and it's not about the master guru. It's, before we started the podcast, you were talking about enlightenment. In our tradition, there is no such thing, you know, claiming enlightenment because it's just a waste of time. Mm. It's unnecessary to claim enlightenment and to talk about enlightenment and all of that before and after enlightenment because it's such a concept. It's just another carrot that you hang in front of yourself and then somebody who has a carrot is somehow better than you. And So there's none of those trappings of enlightenment. It's just somebody who who's wise and who's deeply grounded and who you have a certain resonance with. And it's not about uh, just doing exactly what this is about experimentation. They guide you and then you practice. So you have to take personal responsibility and verify the teachings through your own experience. So it's a very grounded, natural process, which helps you evolve and become a better person. It's so interesting because when you're talking, I'm thinking about the fact you also had this one teacher from, you know, the age of five to 18, and most people there have a new teacher every year. So you form a bond, but to have that bond with someone you love so much over such a long period of time is such a special thing. And I suppose you loved, obviously, what he was teaching you, and, and to learn meditation from five years old is amazing. I'm assuming not everyone goes on to that path, he might start teaching other people who are not as into it as you are. But there's something really special about the fact that you really enjoyed what he had to give. And it reminds me a bit, I'm thinking of my son who's about to turn 10 and he just loves Hebrew and Jewish studies and people find that so weird. How can you love this so much? And he loves learning about religion. When you're talking, I'm thinking of him because I'm, when you have this innate knowing and yearning for something and you just enjoy it so much, it's such a beautiful thing. Absolutely. You know, Maharaji also always used to say, he said, there is no teachers. There is, it is primarily the students. A lot of people talk about golden chain of teachers, but what he talked about was a golden chain of students. He said, we are mm -hmm. all students. And it's your sincerity that generates the passion in the master to teach. Because if you don't have the deserving power, if you don't have that, then there is no, the true teacher is not going to teach an unwilling student, right? That's the marker of 
ego mind. Egotistic people will always solicit, give advice where unasked, will always try to teach those who are not willing to learn. But in our tradition, you know, and in any healthy culture, there has to be only teaching those only who are willing to learn. And there lies the great uh, blessing. If you can have that, that's what we call resonance. And uh, you know, not everybody will have that. But uh, those who do, uh, I think it's important to realize how big of an impact that can have. Absolutely. And you then obviously went on to be a Jyotish master. And I'd like to talk a bit about that. Can you explain what firstly Jyotish is? So Jyotish is part of the Vedic path, right? It's the Yoga Vedantic path. And so the yogic teachings, the Yoga Vedantic teachings are designed to help us live our fullest life, right? To a life of great joy and a, a guide of life of great wisdom. So Jyotish is a part of this great vast field of knowledge. And Jyotish literally means the science of light. It's a Veda Anga. It's one of the six limbs of the Veda. And it's called the, the eye of the Veda. And Veda means knowledge. And so it's the knowledge of self, it's the light of self. It helps us gain a deeper understanding of who we are. There's two aspects to us, right? There is the timeless self, which is uh, boundless. What you might, in Vedas, it's called Brahman. So they're defined by the Mahavakya Aham Brahmasmi, that I am that or I am totality. And then there is the time-bound part of us. You know, we are born uh, into, you know, through a system, right? There is a pre-existing system which allows life, which we live on a planet, which peoples, just like an apple tree apples. And so there is a system in place and we are born on a fixed state and then we die. And in between there is the hyphen called life. And there is possibilities and our whole life happens in time. And we find that our life is a mysterious thing. We find that our life is a combination of free will and predeterminism. A lot of time our life is defined by events we never thought would happen through chance encounters or synchronous moments. And so it's just one of the tools of the great spiritual sciences and the spiritual tradition that is the Yoga Vedantic teachings, right? So it's, Jyotish is only relevant, only helpful when it is taken together with the whole spiritual path of the Yoga Vedantic teachings, right? If you take Jyotish just in isolation, just as an isolated body of knowledge, it does not serve the purpose because then you are prone to misunderstand it and have a more dogmatic approach towards it or more superstitious approach towards it where you start to give up your power to somehow some you know alien entities and in this, in this case you call them planets right so it's a, it's an empowering science it's designed to empower you and make you have a greater insight and it's very deeply rooted in verifiable knowledge it is not about figuring the future out. It is more about understanding yourself and understanding the different possibilities that lay on your path. And then making the, you know, tuning yourself to meet the higher destinies. Mm. What other spiritual things would you need to do to, you talk about using Jyotish, but what are the other spiritual practices that you recommend? I mean, the whole yogic teachings, right? Which is the, 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 the jnana yoga, meaning the correcting of intellect, really exposing our awareness to deeper knowledge, which is your podcast is, is that, right? What you're primarily offering through your podcast is jnana yoga, meaning deep knowledge, which can help facilitate correction of your intellect, create a deeper philosophy of life. And, uh, you know, with the hope that you can base your actions on this correct understanding, right? Inspirations mm-hmm. and get certain tools to implement in your life. So that is first is jnana yoga, meaning encounter, exposing your awareness to deeper knowledge, correcting your intellect, examining your assumptions, examining really fundamentally what is the philosophy that you base your life on. And then there is the yoga of love, cultivating practices that open up your heart and make you more in tune with the fundamental fabric of existence where you don't feel like an alien in an alien environment, but where you live in a universe which is your ally and not a threat. I think which is a fundamental decision we must all make whether we live in a universe that is your ally or you live in a universe that is your enemy. 
Now, let's say you make a decision that you know, I live in a universe that is my ally. Now you must train yourself, your heart. You must train your heart to have that experience. You can't, uh, you can't just have a thought and think that it's going to work out in that way. Now then you must train yourself. So practices are required. And there is the yoga of skill in action, how to act and bring this knowledge and embody these teachings in our life. And then there is the subtle practices of Kriya and breath work and the subtle techniques working with sound or breath and different aspects of our own localized expression, which help refining of our system. From the yogic perspective, this tool, this is the Yathabha, Pinde Tathabha Mande, which means as is the universe within, so is the universe without. Now, this piece of localized universe is ultimately has all the ingredients that make up the extended universe. And so there's an incredible potential here, which often remains unrealized, just as a computer is limited by what level of code is there. There is incredible code which needs to be, which can be activated by distinct practices. So that's part of the whole yogic technology, the technology part, which creates what we might call the sadhana, the, the specific techniques which you use for aligning your inner environment, right? It's a very evolutionary way of living, which, which addresses every aspect of your being. And ultimately, it starts from a, you know, a sense of deep self-love that mm-hmm. I deserve to live a full life and everybody who's connected to me deserves to get the best version of myself. Love just seems always to be this overriding, beautiful emotion that if we foster, just makes everything so brilliant and worthwhile and beautiful. And I talk about it with many people on this podcast. But in your experience, why do you think it always comes back to love? I mean, it's because love the invitation of self-realization, the more you know yourself, the more you realize that love is at the core of all, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So the absence of love is absence of self-knowledge. And so the greater self-knowledge there is, what you start to find is how much love there is, you know, then love is not merely an emotion. It becomes the, one of the very parts of the fabric of existence. And so it's a, it's a journey from the yogic perspective. The root chakra, which is Muladhara, is the seat of fear, which is your reptilian brain, the flight and fight syndrome, right? So in the heart center, you know, when the Shakti starts to rise and your heart chakra starts to come online, is the seat of love. And the root is also the seat of infinite potential, right? So fear and infinite potential coexist. Mm-hmm. And when, when we examine our life, we find that we are always looking for more right? Our human beings are designed. We, are, we spend our time searching for more. And we all, even when we find something of value, then we want to spread it, right? Whether it is in the context of science or passion or music or arts or religion, anything, we find something of value. We think, oh, this is beautiful. Then we want to share it with as many people as we can. This is a very human nature. And so what is that? You know, that is love, when we, whenever it's like child, you know, when you find something of value, you want to share it with your parents or anyone. And so there is this innate thing, which is very much at the core of our being. And so this journey of our life is from isolation to unity, from ego to unity. So the more we are moving in the direction of love, the greater fulfillment we find, the greater self-realization, the greater wisdom. Mm. You know, I always say that love and knowledge are only separate from each other in ignorance, right? So like the Buddha said, there is suffering and then there is a way out of suffering and the way out of suffering is through wisdom awareness and but then you find that the the fundamental drivers of his teaching is also compassion and love and and so you start to find that awareness or wisdom and love are actually inseparable the more you truly know the deeper love you will experience because you know from uh, from all that I have experienced and seen and come to understand, you know, it, love is the cause. Mm-hmm. It's the causeless cause, right? It's, it's, it's very elegantly spoken in one of the Upanishads that we come through love, we exist through love, and unto love we shall return. Mm-hmm. And so the love is the causeless cause. And it's like realizing love is realizing source yes. and realizing yourself. 
that's yeah. one of the great invitations of life, right? That whole idea of home, the famous Ramda saying how we're all walking each other home. And it's that idea of the innate knowing that our body has is love. Like it always comes back to that. And I mean, obviously you find it, I would assume after years of practice, quite easy to go back to that state of love. But how in your life, if you ever feel challenged, do you get yourself back into a state of love? Or, I mean, we're all human beings when there's grief or anything that that comes into our life may distance ourselves from love a little. You see, for me, love is not just a momentary experience. Anything that you experience happens within the field of love. Mm. And so the love in, has room, this love. If you're truly a loving being, then you got to embrace pain, right? For pain is also a gift of love. Mm. You know, we experience pain only because we have love. If there was no localized self, there would be no pain, right? So the pain is the price the infinite pays to play finite, right? We are all infinite, but the infinite does not experience pain. Finite does, but it is the finite expression, which is the potential infinity, is the finite value which experiences pain. So the pain itself is the, you know, it's a gift of love only. So love becomes for me is, is the clearing in which all your life happens. So you experience it through the glass of love, right? Through the eyes of love. And that includes your pain and that includes the worthy challenges in life for without the worthy challenge, there is no growth. So you're going to go up to the mountain. You know, I love climbing mountains and you go up in the mountain. And even though you have practiced and you have, I've lived in my life in climbing the mountain and spending so much, you still get challenged and the weather changes and there will be times where you feel, oh, so cold. And that's a worthy challenge and there is pain, but it's all happening. The underlying current is all love. And of course, as I said, you have to have practice. For me, there is not a day that I have not practiced, right? I have a very clear commitment to myself and for the role I play that I have a commitment to, to the role that I play, that it's my responsibility to be in my best self. And so I've not missed a day of practice in my life. So this aligning yourself is a very, very important thing. So for me, I always take every morning, you know, it is take time to practice. There is at least a couple of hours and in the evening. So that's an important thing, I think, because as you go through time, you have, you go out of alignment. Mm. And so if you are consistently practicing, then you're, you have more and more staying power. You have, when your bounce back is much quicker, you know, you become more and more subtle. So it's like water, you knife in, knife out, and the water re regains its flow, right? So it absorbs the knife, but the knife comes out, you can't see the trace. And so we become more and more subtle within ourselves as we align. And we find that our ability to live from that place of inner knowing of love increases. And I think that's what I always say. We must be interested in gain, moving in the direction of unity, not trying to get enlightened or reach some perfect state. No, we have to, our divinity has to include our humanity. We must not chase perfection for perfection is dead and it's inert. Anything which is dynamic cannot be perfect for perfect is a static state. And we are all living in time and time means change. And so either we will change progressively or we will change regressively. And if we are putting processes in place, then time becomes our ally. In time, we keep getting better. If yeah. we don't have processes in place, then time is our enemy. In time, things get worse. So we come from love. And now if we start putting in right processes and aligning this instrument, then in time, our experience of love increases. And if we don't, then we find we were, as childhood, we were all bubbly. But then as we age, we have stresses. And by the time we are preparing to depart, drop this body, we have lost. Love is just a memory, mm. you know. And so that's not what we recommend, right? And so for me, it's a clearing and it's a consistent practice. It's interesting you talk about practices because I think that's so important and to have a consistent practice, like you said, like a daily practice. And I know for myself, I do Vedic meditation uh, most mornings or some form of meditation. And then the last year or two on the weekends, there's this two-hour meditation that I 
do. And it's all about centering yourself back to love. And I do it on Saturday and Sunday. And people think I'm crazy. And they're like, how do you even find the time to do this meditation? And because I'm not in India where you are, it's as accepted and you have kids and or whatever. But the reason that I do it is that exact reason that you're speaking about. I only do it because that practice aligns me in a way that I feel not only connected to the divine, but it aligns me back into that state of love. And it's just that little reminder that yes, in my eyes open life, I'm always thinking about being conscious of my actions and the things that I do and things that I say, but having those practices, it's just so grounding. And I I just do it for myself because it makes me feel good and and yeah, I, I just think it's such a special thing. And I'd, I'd love to know about your daily practices. Yeah, I, we, I teach the Sattva integrated practice. So we that's what I practice is the integrated approach, uh, which includes Kriya and meditation and breath work and working with sound and different mantras. And uh, so there are deep practices. And the integrated approach, this is from the yogic teachings, the yogic teachings designed to really address every aspect of our being. And uh, so depending on what time and so the practices differ, you know, from time to time, what techniques I'm using. And uh, it's a really rich tradition and with uh, very uh, specific practices to address different aspects of our being and different times, you know, what is the need of the hour you feel, okay, that's something you can uh, develop, right? You can call upon. So it's a very rich and deep source mm-hmm. teachings, right? And, you know, as you said, I think that's when people say, how do you f- have time? I mean, that's the only thing you have, right? Yeah. That's the only thing we have time. If we don't have time, what else do we have? You know, when we don't have time, that's the time we call death has come. You know, the only time you don't have time is when you're, about to breathe your last. Otherwise, life is time. And value is driver of time. Whatever you value, you have time for it. And when you live in a world which is constantly external oriented and everybody's just telling you that, you know, joy is to be found outside. And once you get to some imaginary location, then you will have it all. And then when you will feel happy. I mean, that's the biggest lie, right? I mean, we, this is, again, not a nice idea, but it's a fact you can verify from your own observation. Mm-hmm. And so when we value from, and that comes from deep inner insight that, okay, my state of being is primary. Uh, it is my state of consciousness, which is the primary, because that is what life is. Life is nothing but an experience that I have. And if this I is not in alignment, then life will not be in alignment. Mm. And so when we value ourselves, then we have time. And that is not selfishness because that you being in your alignment is going to benefit anybody who comes in contact with you as a leader, as a mother, as a father, as a friend, as a son, as a daughter, anybody who comes in contact with you for that centered being, that source of love will benefit. Mm-hmm. That's so true. I want to go back to the Jyotish readings because I think that's so interesting, the astrology behind them. And you mentioned a bit before, and I know in Sanskrit it says Jyotish is the science of light, and it f- refers to the profound and mathematically sophisticated form of astrology originating in the ancient Vedic traditions of India. And you gave me a reading yesterday, and it was so interesting. And I, I wanted to talk a bit about it. You mentioned it before about this idea of destiny and then some things are predetermined and some things are free will. So you read a chart just to explain to people, I give you my birth date, my birth time, where I was born, and then from that you can work out a lot about my life, which is just so profound. How do you know in that chart what is free will and what is destiny? See, so first of all, let's understand free will and, and destiny, right? Yeah. And so on the absolute level, it's all free will, right? Because you are that. Now, again, there are certain, it's a strange thing because, you know, there is neuro 
scientists who would say there is no such thing as free will, right? And then they will argue with someone who says there is free will. And so that's, uh, that itself seems like a unnecessary thing to do. If there is no free will, then why are you debating some, somebody who says there is free will? Because obviously that person doesn't have free will to decide that they, <laughs> to change their mind. That's so true. <laughs> so the whole, <laughs> and so nothing in your, you, nobody lives their life in a way that believing that there is no free will, right? We all yeah. live every day. We, we encounter decision and our most intimate experience is that there is, we make choices and they have impact. And so we, our intimate experience, yet when we observe life, we find there are events which we didn't choose, right? At least consciously or even with the family you are born into, right? Location you are born into, the parents you are born to. So on a certain level, you find that, oh, that's not a choice as this localized value of self you made, right? And so, but on an absolute level, since you are that, it's all ultimately your creation, so it's only on a relative level that is predeterminism and free will coexisting. And so the, when we speak of predeterminism, it's not like a third party. It is self-created and it is not like crystallized or exactly this is how it needs to be, right? It is more on the level of energetic reality because the fundamental nature of manifest reality is energy, shakti. The matter reality is only at the certain level of observation. What we have you know in the universe is only events energetic events there is ultimately no such thing as a thing you have events unfolding at different rates so you have this sea of energy when we make a chart it's an energetic event right it's an event and you through that first breath when you're looking at just how the solar system was because we live in an interbeing interdependent interconnected reality right the space between us is not a separator but a connector and so the planets and how the system was designed in that moment just gives us a window into how the energetic fabric was at that mm. time when you talk about time the way we experience it is also an emergent phenomena right we experience time as going from point a to point b and that we experience it because of we see things changing and that's the second law of thermodynamics and also because psychological error of time because we have memory so we remember yesterday, we don't remember tomorrow. So we feel, even though we are always here, we feel that we are kind of moving from point A, that is our birth, to point B, that is the eventual body death, right? But while we always remain here, we are actually not going anywhere. The future comes through here. So on a subtler level, all the futures, so there is no singular future, just futures, on us, energetic level are accessible when you look at the chart because it's just energy, mm. right? So on that subtler level, time is not so rigid. So it gives you an insight. So it doesn't look like, oh, now, of course, on a grosser level, time behaves differently. But when you look at a subtler level, time is just like a brush strokes, right? This is brush strokes. So like, you know, date of birth and date of death. And if you look at time of our life, it's just that hyphen in between. So it's not that big, but thankfully, when you are going through that hyphen, it feels long enough. Yeah, <laughs> right? seems like ages. <laughs> <laughs> but so in that jyoti, you start to look at the subtler, when you look at the subtle picture, it gives you a profound insight. And the whole purpose of jyotish, again, is to align yourself to that, in that manner, to use your potential in that manner, that you keep meeting the higher future. Right. Mm. So you don't just create your future. You also meet your future. So you are creating and meeting simultaneously, like right now. So from the Jyotish's perspective, right now is the now moment. But now, right now is also the future happening to us. Right. So anybody listening is we are all in the present moment. But the moment I speak and my words are heard by you, you're already in the future. Mm. Right. So we are in the present, but also future is coming. And when is it coming? It's coming right now. And so how is the future coming? The future is coming the way we are, right? So you are kind of meeting the future, you and I, and everybody who's listening is also meeting the future simultaneously while we are also creating through our intention, through how, what we are giving attention to, what, how we are aligning ourselves. So we are creating, but simultaneously meeting. For There is so many variables 
to what we call future, right? It's not just my own creation as an isolated value of awareness or your own creation. Yeah. There's an interconnected, it's a greater thing that is also happening. And so you, when the whole Jyotish in alliance with the whole yogic science, it just gives you, helps you understand the energetic fabric and then apply the relevant tools and also understand how time flows, right? Everything happens in its time, nothing before its time, nothing after its time, always now, never then. So there is a winter and winter is winter and there is monsoon. And so if you are a farmer, you know, if you plant the rice, when the season is for rice, then rice just grows. So there is a predeterministic mechanism in nature, that's predeterminism, that at a certain point in the climate cycle, weather cycle, when you plant the seeds of rice, it's the nature's predeterminist laws of nature will bring that rice up. So you just plant it, you do your work, but then nature supports it and brings it. If the season is for rice, you plant the wheat, nothing works, mm -hmm. right? Because you're fighting the destiny of that time. So you can call that destiny is that law, right? That rice grows at a particular time and it requires a particular soil. So there is a fundamental law of nature. So we have to understand the predeterminism not as like some kind of third party, but these are subtler possibilities, right? And certain laws of nature. When we begin to understand them, then we can harness the, the power of existence and we can gain greater and greater support from nature. So where you feel, oh, I'm living more charmed life or the law of effortlessness starts to apply. For the law of effortlessness needs to apply, you have to do the right thing in the right time. Mm -hmm. that's and so, so that's a part of how Jyotish becomes so relevant and helpful. And so again, as I said, it's about empowering yourself and realizing a lot of time people, oh, planets are the makers. No, planets don't do nothing. They're just keepers. <laughs> you do. And so it's about taking responsibility and learning. And again, it is of no use unless it is understood in a greater context. If yeah. it is isolated and made into some kind of crystal ball gazing, future telling thing, then it loses its value. Yes. That makes a lot of sense. Is death predetermined or is that also dependent on the choices that you make to get to where you end up being? Yes and no, right? We all have a destiny to die. Yes. I mean, that's fixed. <laughs> the yeah. time, for some people, again, it's uh, when you look at the leaves on the tree, they all are the same, but they're also not. It's so in every life, so some lives you find they have a very clear trajectory. It's unavoidable, certain things and certain events from a very young age are laid out in such a manner that they encounter those things. And there's, you feel, okay, this was the past life value, punya was very strong in this life, right? Yeah. And so you, different lives are different. I think in some lives, the time is much more uh, fixed. I have personally met, you know, certain yogis who knew at the time of their de departure, right? So they prepared and they told other people, okay, I'm going to drop my body on such and such day, including my guru. And so... But for some, you know, it's, it's something you can adapt to and you can shift and you can uh, transcend. I think the intention of everybody should be to have longevity mm. and healthy life. So if you use the tools properly, then you can push that eventual destiny of body dissolution to the furthest extent, right? So it's only in very rare cases do you have the, again, when I say rare, but we are dealing with a lot of numbers, right? Yeah. So you find enough people. But in most cases, you can extend it through right action, yes. right knowledge, right? You can extend the, the life of the body. I wanted to talk to you about this idea of yadyas because I'd never heard of them before. 
And I only think I found out about them this year. And I would assume that most people listening to this podcast have no idea what they are. And I think you'll do a much better job of explaining it than I do. Can you explain to us what what they are? Yagyas are techniques for harnessing certain values of nature as prescribed in the Vedas, right? The oldest uh, surviving scripture in the world today is Rig Veda. And so in the Rig Veda, it is spoken of. So the Yagyas are involved the element of fire. It's working with the fundamental Panchabhuta, the f- elemental reality of existence, which is at the subtler level. All of our theater is fundamentally built on the five elements, right? And so it's really taking our awareness to that level of reality where the elements devoid of the human theater are the dominant reality. And then using the power of the sound for our thoughts are sound. We live in a vibrating universe. Everything is a vibration. So wherever there is vibration, there is sound, either audible sound or inaudible sound. Sound Mm -hmm. is there. So all of our programs, all of our technology is primarily sound. Code is sound. You program a computer or a phone, there is code there, which is language, sound. And so, so as is the language and sound of computers to make websites and stuff, there is language, which is at the subtle level which of nature. And so these are the mantras. And so when you use these mantras, which are like certain sound codes in a certain sequence, in a certain way, it generates a certain flow of energy through the system, system within and system without. So there are different yagyas, like different codes, which are designed to help access different aspects of, of being, different qualities of energy, right? To activate certain qualities within ourselves primarily, and then also in the extended self. So I use the word extended self because first it's here, and but then it extends because there is really no boundary. Isolated self is a hallucination. The isolated I does not exist, right? It's an interconnected whole that exists. And so the yagyas are these processes where you work with the elemental reality. The primary element in the center is fire. So it's always around the element of fire. And then using the specific mantras and sounds to help create a meditative experience. And those sounds are being chanted. If you can do it yourself, it helps generate a certain flow of energy in you, change your thinking because our thoughts are also words. Our feelings are also words. And so it helps you get into a certain state and also generate a flow of energy on the extended self. And so they are used, they are part of the yoga Vedantic tradition to help gain alignment with nature, to help harness certain values of nature, to help activate certain potentialities within us. They have been used for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And done in a proper way, they have a very deep effect with the correct knowledge and correct understanding. And to give some context, I think the way that people use them sometimes is, again, as you said, if you're contacting the right people, you can use them for different things. Like people have used them before if they can't find a relationship or they want to attract love or there was a couple that used them because they had tried to fall pregnant for a long period of time and then they got these yagyas done and And that worked. And it's not a miracle by any means, but a lot of people do use them to help them with certain things in their life that might not be moving forward. I think the main thing is to move forward and grow. I think that's where the yagyas are most relevant. But they are for specifically, you know, for example, let's say your vision is, let's say some individual is having some physical issue, right? Physical challenge, body challenge. And so... They might be taking some Western medicine, molecular medicine. They can be using inner practices of working with their energy through breath, working in the mind through meditation, doing some kriya, focusing on their diet, changing their diet, changing their behavior. And also they can use yagya to help facilitate. So it's just another tool to help you clear your path and because that physical well-being is a very optimal and worthy desire to have, right? It's a worthy intention to have, I want to be healthy. And so that there the yagya can be, in just in that metaphor, you are ill and you're not getting 
proactive towards your health and you get a yagya done, it's of no use. You know? mm. <laughs> so it, it, if you are doing it, then it's a great tool to help you facilitate and can support you with the right intentionality. And in our tradition, we recommend if your personal involvement is much stronger. And of course, there are some who do it from a distance. And so, but if you can be personally involved, it's much better. Mm. Because it's a really a, it's a deep meditative experience, right? And so you get into an altered state. And these altered states that we can access within ourselves are, is where magic happens. You know, when I say magic, meaning, I mean, there is only one miracle, right? And it has never stopped happening. And so just in a relative term, you get into these altered states and that's where you can access a deeper intelligent part of your yeah. own self. You said something very interesting to me last night when we, we spoke. You said, we can choose to learn through ease or hardship. And I, I really do love that. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, see, from my perspective, you know, I think we are here to learn and grow. That is our param dharma. Our primary dharma is to grow. A lot of time people say, what is my dharma? As if, what am I supposed to do with my life? You know, what you're do, supposed to do is grow and learn. And uh, that, and we see that is everywhere in nature. Any species which evolves and adapts learns with time, thrives. Any species which resists that eventually gets wiped out. And so we are born in time, right? Even though we belong to eternity, we, we exist in time. And time is change. And in that time, we are here to learn. And if we are not learning proactively through our own intentionality, then life will force us to learn. We cannot escape the learning part. And that forceful learning, the unwilling student learning, is suffering and misery. Mm. Right? But when you are willing, like we were talking, when we started in the beginning, you were talking about your son, that how he loves the Jewish studies, because he loves it and is in love with that, that is a source of joy for him. So he's learning that and he's learning from joy. And so his experience of that, so for some people it can be like, what? How can you like that? But his experience of that is why wouldn't I, right? Because, and so his experience of learning that is so much effortless. There is a great charm and what it does to him, that same knowledge is very different than somebody who has resistance to that very process of interacting with that body of knowledge. They suffer through it. And so it's about really realizing that we are here to learn and grow and to take proactive learning instead of waiting for life to force you to learn, right? And so when we are challenged, it's really ultimately knowledge we haven't met yet, right? The growth we haven't had yet. And so if we are really in that mindset of deeper and designing our life on that deep ground of dharma, which is deep self-realization, then we find we learn through play. You know, so my master always said, either you can live this life as a play or a war. Hmm? The yogis recommend play and the word is Leela, right? So playful learning or learning through battle. Hmm? And so we recommend playful learning. And for that, you have to orient your life in that way. And when you are aligning yourself and really working on yourself, not because you have to, but because you want to and you get to. Now you get to. And then you find that you keep growing. And as that growth is in alignment with life, then you change your dasha. I mean, coming back to Jyotish, you go, to go through different phases, right? These are called dashas in Jyotish. Then you are able to adapt to the new flow of time, what your life is asking you to do now. And so you begin to find that you are learning and you're growing, but there is a great ease. When you develop a rigid mindset and you're attached to rigid thinking and narrow-mindedness and narrow bandwidth of awareness, <coughs> then there is always learning through suffering. Mm. From the yogic perspective, the cardinal sin, the only sin is ignorance. When you've read people's charts before, I wonder if you've read someone's chart when they were maybe not doing any spiritual practices or kind of living life haphazardly and then they've learned a lot more and say five years later you read their chart again and it's changed because of 
their new practices and their new way of thinking and being? Is that something that happens? Absolutely. All the time. That's the whole point of doing it, you know? Yeah. That's the whole intention for if I, I do it very less now, but I've trained enough Jyotishis, Sattva Jyotishis who are doing amazing work all over the world. And that's one of the things we train, right? That it's about when you go in there, your intention as a Jyotish in that moment or as a teacher is to help empower this individual to get to their best version, right? To their higher self. And so I always say there is no great life. There is only great people. And great people have great lives, right? And so you, when you access your greatness, you find your whole chart upgrades because your chart is you. You are your chart, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the, when you make a chart, it's just an extension of you. It is you who's making it. And so I've seen it all the time that the access point changes, right? Where they are accessing their own potential. So their access point changes. And so when that changes, their whole future starts to change. And it's, it's quite remarkable to see what human beings are capable of. It's truly a magnificent, when you see that, right? It's the greatest mm. gift. When you see someone who has grown and who has transformed and who has risen up in their level where they have transcended so much of their own misery, it's one of the greatest gifts to be able to see that, that growth in someone. And I've seen that so many times, so many times. What have you seen is the cause of suffering? The cause of suffering is ignorance. Yeah. Is avidya. And that avidya shows up then in different ways, right? It shows up as rigid thinking. It shows up as, you know, ego identity. It shows up as unworthiness. It shows up as an inherent mistrust of life and of existence. It shows up as carrying angst. It shows up as attachment to painful past playing the victim, it shows up, it can show up at different ways. One of the greatest scriptures on yoga is Patanjali's Yoga Sutra. And in in that he says, the growth on the field of ignorance is plenty. It's an incredibly fertile field. So you cut one and then before, by the time you're done with that, the other grows and the other grows. And so he says that the wise one, instead of trying to chase the, what is growing goes to the field and clears the field of ignorance and bases their life in the direction of wisdom, vidya. So it's from avidya to vidya. And as we are moving in the direction of greater awareness, greater alignment, then these different expressions of ignorance, which is attachment to outcomes, rigid mindset, ego identity, you know, malice, carrying malice in our hearts, lack of self-worth, competitiveness, all of these start to go down. Right, mm-hmm. slowly, 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 they start to they start to lose their grip on us because when you see these ignorant tendencies, they are not just personal, right? They just don't belong to you or me or so and so. It's a shared experience of humanity. When I say resentment, we all know that. When you say the word anger, we all know that. These things, there is a personal access, but there is also impersonal, right? There is a shared unconscious of humanity, the shared field of avidya, shared field of ignorance. And so as you are moving more and more in the direction of vidya, orienting your life through that inner state, then you find these tendencies start to lose their grip. Mm. Every now and then you can have off days, you can have maybe an off week, but as long as you are sincere and just maturely realize that fundamental truth that it's the self who designs it all, and my consciousness state is primary. As the universe within, so is the universe without. The whole thing is as above, so below. It is actually as within. This is the one above, and this is all below. So when you have this knowingness, then your ability, staying power increases, and deserving power increases. So you start to naturally transcend these different aspects in the way ignorance expresses itself. Mm. And it's a lifelong journey. As I said, again, it's very important, I think, for us to not chase perfection because that's another ego trap. Who I am versus who I should be, what I have versus what I want to have and the gap in between is misery. And Mm. so that what I should be can be enlightenment, more famous, more slim, more, more followers, whatever it is, right? So the gap is misery. 
And so we have to really acknowledge where we are at and just have a lifelong journey. We're not trying to get anywhere. I always say it's not just about that you're walking each other home. You are home. There is no other home. You are home. You've always been home. And mother is at home. Everything is fine. Everything is working out, even though nothing is under control. And your job is to keep just leaning in the direction of growth and try to do your best every day. And you start to find these tendencies start to loosen their grip. And you must be kind to yourself. You must be forgiving to yourself. You know, one of the great masters I met, and he was so brilliant. And he said to me, he was in the Uttarkashi, these higher Himalayas. And he said, one of the big distinctions between a joyous man and an unhappy person is the joyous person forgives themselves at least six times a day. Hmm. Right? That's so good. (laughs) I wonder, Anand, what is the best advice that you have ever been given? Oh, I think the best advice is Tattwa Masi, you are that. And now realize it. That will be the best advice I got. Thou art that. Mm. And now realize it. What's the lesson that has taken you the longest to learn? Ah, I haven't thought about it. I think I'm learning. I don't think there's any one lesson. I think I'm always learning. You know, you, you go through different phases of your life and there are different things you learn and I had to learn to be become more well-adjusted to the world because I spent so much time up in the mountains. And when I started to teach, I had to be with people more because I spent so much time by myself. And so I had to learn to become more well-adjusted to people and be okay with being around other people. So that was in the beginning when I started to travel. That was a very challenging thing for me because I felt... I was longing to be, you know, there was, I was, my life asked me to play, to fulfill certain needs I had to do, but there was this longing to just run up and be in the high Himalayas. As long as you learn the lesson, then no lessons take long. Then the whole concept of time drops, right? As long as you're learning, then how long it takes, it doesn't matter. You're just learning. Then all the the lessons that take long are the sweetest ones then, Mm. right? Because you feel, ah, there's a great sense of realization in that. Do you have a favorite prayer or saying or mantra? I love the mantras, you know, there's so many and they all have effect and relevancy. So it's not about just not like a song and they have different effects, right? So it's, they are relevant in different ways and they have different functions. So I love them all, but then I know how to work with them and different mantras are different applications. So I've been asked many questions about favorite, favorite food, favorite play. I just, I don't <laughs> find, I've been hard. I've been thought about it, but I have not found favorites yes. much. <laughs> what is your greatest hope for society today? I think my greatest prayer is that we let go of our attachment to hate and violence and conflict. That's my prayer that we all can begin to realize the love that is always here and to really realize that we are in the best planet we could be on. Mm. We are in the best location of here that we could be on. And we can realize that and base our lives on this deep inner heart knowing that's my prayer too, that we can transcend our suffering and we can yeah, help as much as we can anybody we encounter and make their life a little better. What is your greatest mystical experience? Oh, when I was around 19, 20, 20, 21, I was living in an ashram. You know, as a monk at that time, and uh, it was four in the morning. We used to go meditate every day at four in the morning. It was winter time, and uh, I just got suspended in a state. Time passed, and 
I couldn't speak. And I was just, just tears kept coming and everything just seemed, my eyes wouldn't focus and everything seemed just light. And people were speaking and I couldn't hear them. I just, just felt like didn't matter what they were saying. It was just this incredible state. And then I went, I felt this voice said, go to the cave. So I went to Vashishta's cave. There is a place up from here. And I spent some time there by myself. As an adult, that was, in the adult body, that was one of the most profound experiences that had a, uh, after that, I was there for a while. I spent some time alone for, for a bunch of time. And then after that, is when I started to, I came back. So I didn't speak for, for a long time, for a while there. And then I came back and I started to teach after that. So for me, that was a really a profound experience, yeah. What did you feel whilst that was happening? What was the overriding feeling? Oh, was grace. Mm was grace, just incredible grace. That's when tears come, right? Like when you're touched by something so deeply. And that's where I find like love and pain are not so separate. Because when you're sometimes in pain, tears come. But also when you feel the deepest level of love, also tears come, right? And so, yeah, it was this profound feeling of just being held in love. And this grace like it was something greater than you there is something so much greater than what we know and that who i think i am and all that or the the theater that we participate in the sense of something so much greater and it was not a thought it was just a the deepest most intimate knowing mm-hmm. And it was, yeah, my sense was this just profound grace. And there was such ease in that absence of all strife. Yeah, it's really, even when I speak to it now, I can, I'm there, right? In that experience, it's a, it's not something you know through the mind. Then something that you know through your own experience that knowledge now cannot be taken away. Mm. That you have borrowed from books. It's something that comes, is this knowledge which is born from your own inner experience is ultimately the knowledge that liberates you. Anybody can say anything and you can have space for that and you can, different opinions and you can have room for that and it doesn't, trigger you nothing because you know something from the depth of your being Mm. yeah the thing is you can't like force these experiences to happen right no like you can do the practices and the practices can help create the environment where such possibilities can occur but we recommend not to chase experiences but to really just do the work and let nature take its course you know Mm. That's so true. What is a life of greatness to you? A life of greatness is us moving in the direction of our own greatness. And great people have great lives. And so I think we should, instead of chasing great life, we should move in the direction of our own inner greatness. Mm. For the greatness lies within us. And this is can sound cliche, but it's the fact it's the fact. All the answers we seek live within us and we are born of infinity. We are infinity localized. Each and every one of us is the aperture to infinity. And so the potential for everyone is infinite. And so as we dive deep within ourselves and unlock these potentialities within us, then our life becomes great. Then you can be sitting by the river and that's a great life. Mm. And you can be walking with your child just in the, on the beach, or that can be a great life. Or you can be a leader, that can be a great life. And the great life can look very different. It doesn't have to look a certain way. Life of great greatness can look very, very different. It can look very simple also as, 
you know, somebody just living in a cave and that's a great life. Nobody knows about you and that's a great life also. And so I think greatness is the ex- your inner experience and each and every one of us is potentially, that's the, our potential, great. The work that you're doing also is inviting people and moving them in that direction to discover their own greatness. Anand, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom today. It's so greatly appreciated. I very much enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful to have this conversation with you too. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.